0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker.
1: Hello, I'm Alex Kanibos and this is Political Theory 101.
0: So today we're going to do Escanese. We're going to talk about cancellation in ancient Athens, how you get rid of somebody you don't like in Athenian democracy, what kinds of arguments tend to work, what strategies work, and what was going on in Athens right before the Macedonians took over, or right as the Macedonians were taking over. So, give you a little bit of a picture. During this period, and we're talking the 340s, 330s, right? Philip of Macedon, the the king of Macedonia, is consolidating his power. And it's increasingly clear to the Athenians and to the other leaders in the other Greek city-states that the Macedonians are going to take over uh, if nobody does anything about it. They're getting really, really strong and really, really swollen. So, an orator, Demosthenes, plays a particularly prominent role in trying to mobilize the Greeks to stop the Macedonians from taking over. Now, Uh, And is another Athenian politician of this period, and he also is playing a role in advocating for the city. But uh, at one point, he's sent to negotiate a peace with Philip. And when he's sent to negotiate a peace with Philip, this involves being diplomatic and occasionally saying nice things about Philip. And Demosthenes becomes suspicious of Eskenes and begins to believe that maybe Eskenes is a sympathizer with the Macedonians. Maybe he's a foreign agent. Maybe he's, you know, secretly one of them. So, Demosthenes starts trying to get Ascanese canceled. And conversely, Ascanese starts trying to get Demosthenes canceled, in part to protect himself, in part because, you know, he doesn't think very highly of Demosthenes either. Demosthenes is constantly agitating for more war and more conflict. And Athens seems to be losing most of the wars that it fights with the Macedonians. Indeed, all of the wars that it fights with the Macedonians. So Escanes views Demosthenes as a as a warmonger who gets the city in trouble. And Demosthenes views Aeschines as a Macedonian sympathizer and a potential traitor. But oftentimes these arguments uh, happen not uh, directly between Escanes and Demosthenes, but but sometimes involving other people because Demosthenes has a lot of friends. And so sometimes Demosthenes works with his friends to go after Escanes. So one of these friends of Demosthenes is a guy called Timarchus, and Timarchus and and Demosthenes work together to try to get Escanes cancelled in three forty six BC, and uh, they accuse Escanes of having been a bad ambassador, of having uh, misconducted himself in his post as, as ambassador to the Macedonians, and. Eskenes defends himself by accusing Tamarcus of being unworthy of speaking in the assembly and therefore unworthy of challenging his conduct as ambassador. And Eskenes does this uh, through a rather uh, strange set of, of rhetorical tactics. So Eskenes says there are four different reasons someone might be unfit to speak in the assembly. One is a person who strikes his father or his mother or does not take care of them or does not provide them housing because if a man is mean to his own family, how will he treat the other members of other households or the city as a whole? Two, one who has either not served on military campaigns for which he has been called upon to do so or somebody who during a military campaign is thrown away his shield because cowards who cannot defend the state cannot be permitted to advise it either. Three, one who has prostituted himself or has become a concubine, because if such a man is willing to profit from treating his own body shamelessly, he will profit from selling out the common interest too. And four, one who has either wasted his family estate or any other inheritance he has received, because if a man cannot manage his household, he will handle the affairs of the city in like manner right so four reasons being mean to your parents being a military coward being a prostitute or wasting your money if you do those things then you're not worthy of speaking in the assembly and Eskenes is not just making an argument that this is the case he's implying that this is either the law of Athens or what was intended by the founder of Athens Solon so, to give you a few examples, I'm going to include some quotes, because when we're doing rhetoric, I think quotes are really helpful in getting a flavor for the tenor of the speech. You know, me, I'm not going to say it the way that Escanes would say it or Demosthenes would say it. I'm a little bit too nice for that. But if I read you the quotes, you'll get a sense for just how mean-spirited a lot of this stuff is. So, Escanes says, There is no use in attempting fellow citizens to drive such men from the platform by shouting at them, for they have no sense of shame. We must try, rather, to break them of their habits by pains and penalties, for only so can they be made endurable. So what specifically did Tamarcus do wrong? Well, Aeschines says that Tamarcus prostituted himself and wasted his inheritance. He says, Tamarcus did not hesitate but submitted to it all, though he had income enough to satisfy all reasonable desires, for his father had left him a very large property, which he has squandered, as I will show in the course of my speech. But he behaved as he did because he was a slave to the most shameful lusts, to gluttony and extravagance at table, to flute girls and harlots, to dice, and to all those other things, no one of which ought to have the mastery over a man who is well born and free. And this wretch was not ashamed to abandon his father's house and live with Miskilus, a man who was not a friend of his father's, nor a person of his own age, but a stranger and older than himself, a man who knew no restraint in such matters, while Timarchus himself was in the bloom of youth. Now, Escanes offers very little evidence in support of his claims. He makes a lot of allegations in the speech, but there's no definitive proof, certainly not to anything remotely like a modern standard that any of the claims are true and this is in part because it would be inappropriate for Aeschines to name the specific sex acts that he wants to accuse Timarchus of in public if he named them it would be shameful for Escanese to speak them in the assembly so he can't be very specific about what occurred the sex acts did not take place in public they took place in these private houses so there aren't going to be witnesses to the acts And then none of the participants will admit to the acts because the acts are so shameful. This means that the prostitution claims are made almost entirely on the basis of gossip and innuendo. Right. So Eskeny says, I am very glad that the suit I am prosecuting is against a man not unknown to you and known for no other thing than precisely that practice as to which you are going to render your verdict. For in the case of facts, which are not generally known, the accuser is bound, I suppose, to make his proofs explicit. But where the facts are notorious, I think it is no very difficult matter to conduct the prosecution, for one has only to appeal to the recollection of his hearers. However, although the fact in this case is acknowledged, I remember that we are in court, and so I have drafted an affidavit for Miskilis, true and not indelicate in its phrasing, as I flatter myself. For I do not set down the actual name of the thing that Miscalus used to do to him, nor have I written anything else that would legally incriminate a man who has testified to the truth. But I have set down what will be no news for you to hear and will involve the witness in no danger nor disgrace. So he writes this you know, uh, statement for Miscalus, in which Miskilis would admit to having done something, but not a specific thing, so as not to be ashamed. So he then continues, If therefore Miskilis is willing to come forward here and testify to the truth, he will be doing what is right. But if he prefers to refuse the summons rather than testify to the truth, the whole business will be made clear to you. For if the man who did the thing is going to be ashamed of it and choose to pay a thousand drachmas into the treasury rather than show his face before you, while the man to whom it has been done is to be a speaker in your assembly, then wise indeed was the lawgiver who excluded such disgusting creatures from the platform. But if Miskilus does indeed answer the summons, but resorts to the most shameless course, denial of the truth under oath, as a grateful return to Tamarcus and a demonstration to the rest of them that he well knows how to help cover up such conduct, in the first place he will damage himself, and in the second place he will gain nothing by it. For I have prepared another affidavit for those who know that this man Tamarcus left his father's house and lived with Miskilus though it is a difficult thing, no doubt, that I am undertaking. For I have to present as my witnesses, not friends of mine, nor enemies of theirs, nor those who are strangers to both of us, but their friends. But even if they do persuade these men also not to testify, I do not expect they will, at any rate, not all of them. One thing at least, they will never succeed in accomplishing. They will never hush up the truth. Nor blot out Tamarcus's reputation among his fellow citizens, a reputation which he owes to no act of mine, but to his own conduct. For the life of a virtuous man ought to be so clean that it will not admit even of a suspicion of wrongdoing. So here he really sets the burden of proof very low: the fact that he's suspicious of Tamarcus, the fact that the suspicions can be said, the fact that the audience is familiar with the story knows the rumor, has heard the gossip. That itself is supposed to really be enough to speak against Marcus. But he says, oh, I can find people and I can try to get people to, to say that it happened. But what would even be the point, really? I mean, you know, why push it that far? Don't we all know that this happened? That's the argument. Don't we all know? Haven't you heard? Hasn't everybody heard? So there are further allegations made of sexual impropriety. It's not just to do with miscalism. And Escanes makes a virtue out of not sharing the details that are apparently known to everybody. So another example. Now the sins of this Petalicus against the person of Tamarcus and his abuse of him, as they have come to my ears, are such that by the Olympian Zeus, I should not dare to repeat them to you. For the things that he was not ashamed to do indeed, I had rather die than describe to you in words. On the squandering of the inheritance, Escanes says, When these resources had been wasted, and gambled away, and eaten up, and this defendant had lost his youthful charm, and as you would expect, no one would any longer give him anything, while his lewd and depraved nature constantly craved the same indulgences, and with excessive incontinence kept making demand after demand upon him, then at last, incessantly drawn back to his old habits, he resorted to the devouring of his patrimony." And not only did he eat it up, but if one may say so, he also drank it up. He sold one piece of property after another, not for what it was worth. He couldn't wait for a higher offer, nor even for the bare value, but let it go for what it would fetch on the instant. So urgently did he hasten to gratify his lusts. Ascanius claims, he has witnesses that will say to Marcus sold property for less than it was worth. He says he has them. He also makes further allegations about bribery and corruption, but these are less germane to the exclusion from the city because that has to refer to the original criteria, right? Now, we do not know how Tamarcus responded to these claims, but we do know that he was convicted. It worked, right? Now, that gets rid of Tamarcus, but Escanes still has to worry about Demosthenes, now, Demosthenes goes on to play uh, and continues to play a leading role in organizing opposition to Macedonia after 346. He fights against Philip. When Philip is assassinated, he celebrates Philip's assassination. He, used fun, he uses funds given to him by the king of Persia, Darius III, to rebel against Alexander the Great. Thebes helps Athens in this rebellion. And Alexander responds by raising Thebes to the ground to set an example and demonstrate to the other Greek cities that they have no hope of getting free by rebelling against Macedonia. Now, Alexander is comparatively lenient with Athens. According to the story, Alexander talks about having all of the anti-Macedonians who live in Athens delivered to him or exiled from the city. But ultimately, he relents and he doesn't request this. Right. He then goes on campaign to Persia. Now, in three thirty six, there was an attempt by a man called Ctesiphon to honor Demosthenes for his service to Athens. Ascanese sees this as an opportunity to get revenge and maybe get rid of Demosthenes using the same kinds of tactics he used to get rid of Timarchus. So Aeschines levies another case against Demosthenes and against Ctesiphon. But the case was delayed until 330 because of the chaos surrounding Philip's assassination and death. Now, in 330, Alexander the Great is away on campaign. He's in Persia, in the Persian heartland in modern-day Iran. He's he's past Babylon. He's way, way out east. So, this is all happening while Alexander is is well, well out of the picture. So, in in 330, this speech is called Against Stesiphon, but it is very much about Demosthenes. He spends a lot of the speech attacking Demosthenes. There's a couple segments in the speech that are focused on the specific proposal Cessiphon makes, but I want to draw our attention to the lengthy, lengthy part in the back half where Escanes goes after Demosthenes directly, because I think that's the, the cancellation part, right? So Escanes argues that Demosthenes is not a good citizen, and it's wrong for the laws to say anything false, and therefore it's wrong for Demosthenes to be honored as a good citizen in the law. And again, he starts with a with a definition, right? Before we talked about the, diff- the four reasons you could be excluded from the assembly. Here we say the five reasons that, uh, the five characteristics a good citizen would need to be worthy of being honored, right? First, this man has to be freeborn both on his father's side and on his mother's so that on account of the misfortune of his birth, he not be hostile toward the laws which preserve the democracy. The implication there being, if someone came from, The slave class on one side or the other, they might be hostile to the laws of Athens because their class background would give them reason to oppose the democracy, (laughs) right? Second, that he have from his forefathers a tradition of doing good for the people, or at the very least, no hostility for the people, so that he not attempt to do harm to the city while avenging the misfortunes of his forefathers, So it also has to be the case that his forefathers all had good relationships with the city, that there would be no personal vendettas in his lineage. Third, it is necessary that he be prudent and moderate in the things of daily life so that he not take bribes at the people's expense on account of the outrageousness of his expenditures. Fourth, that he have good judgment and be good at speaking, for it is a good thing when his good sense chooses the best things, and that his education as a speaker and his words persuade the listeners. But if this is not possible, good sense is always to be chosen over speaking ability. So the implication here is that it's great to have someone who has good sense and can speak well, but you'd rather have someone with good sense who will vote well, even if they can't talk well, than someone who talks well, but doesn't know what they're talking about. Fifth, that he be courageous in his souls, that in the face of fearsome dangers, he does not desert the people. Now, Demosthenes gets accused of things like bribery. He gets accused of, of giving bad advice to the people and, and making bad decisions. But the argument hangs on this issue of courage, because Ascanius is going to allege that Demosthenes is a coward. So he says, regarding courage, there's little for me to say, for if he were denying that he is a coward, or if you did not know that he is, the account would have taken quite some time. But since even he himself admits it in meetings of the assembly, and you know it well, it remains for me only to remind you of the laws established about these things. So again, it's everybody knows that he's a coward. I don't even have to say exactly what he did because he's a coward. Now, Eschines does try to give some examples, but he doesn't accuse Demosthenes specifically of desertion, which is a, a crime. He doesn't accuse him of the specific crime of desertion. Instead, he constructs a broad case about Demosthenes' character and says that he is a cowardly person, that he lacks the virtue of courage. And that makes it easier for Eschines to make his argument because he doesn't have to prove in any particular instance that there's desertion. He just has to throw up lots of rumors of desertion to make this case about the character of Demosthenes. Aeschines argues that because Demosthenes knows nothing about war, because he's a coward and, and doesn't participate in war and avoids getting involved really in, in battles and in dangerous situations, he drags the city into wars that it can't win, like the war with Macedon in 339. After the last battle of the war, Demosthenes was chosen to give a funeral oration. Now, because he was chosen to give the funeral oration, this suggests that the city honors and values Demosthenes. Why else would he be chosen to give the funeral oration? So Aeschines is careful to try to turn this moment against Demosthenes. He says, Here indeed it is fitting that we should pay the tribute of memory to those brave men whom he, regardless of the smoldering and ill-omened sacrifices, sent forth into manifest danger, He who, when they had fallen, dared to set his cowardly and runaway feet upon their tomb and eulogize the valor of the dead. So the implication here is, you know, of course, somebody should give a funeral oration, But not because the men died in the service of a good cause, but, you know, because they were brave. But he wasn't brave. He was cowardly. And it was in some ways uh, shameful that this person who was such a coward, you know, was the one who was chosen to give the eulogy, that there was something fundamentally uh, wrong about that. So, again, he kicks up lots of different forms of cowardice, burying him in different charges, but they're all very general, difficult to prove, also difficult to refute because they're so nonspecific. Uh, They don't, uh, and none of them are a formal legal charge of desertion. So none of them are precise enough that you could actually say, hey, I didn't do that. Uh, And also, you know, another reason to do this is if, if, say, he were to make that formal legal charge of desertion, that charge could apply to other men who served alongside Demosthenes on these campaigns. Because if Demosthenes, say, led the army away from the battlefield or led a group of men away from the battlefield uh, or went with a group of men away from the battlefield, the men who went away from the battlefield could also be accused of the same thing. So by avoiding making this direct criminal allegation against Demosthenes, he doesn't kick up opposition from these other people who served alongside him in these wars. Or at least that's what Eskenes hopes he's doing, right? So Eskenes argues that cowards should be politically disenfranchised and barred from entering the Agora. Demosthenes then gives a response. Here we actually do have the response. The response is called On the Crown. And rather than try to refute Eskenes' allegations... Demosthenes recognizes that it is his virtue that's on trial. He therefore just highlights his own achievements as evidence of his virtue. If this is really just about character, then he doesn't have to argue with any of the specific things that Escanes throws up. He just has to say, I'm a great person. I've done all sorts of wonderful things. Now, he also mocks Escanes' definition of a good citizen, arguing that citizens should be judged not by a definition, but by their deeds. And that helps him lead into this enumeration of his own deeds, all of the different services he's provided over the years, how he has opposed the Macedonians and defended the freedom of, the, of Athens. He then flips things around, accusing Escanes of cowardice by suggesting the peace for which Escanes advocated was a coward's peace, that he was friendly with the Macedonians, that he advocated for the Macedonian interest. He says, and for whatever person, the same opportunities have been proven a benefit As for the enemies of the city, it is impossible for this person to be loyal to his country. So Eskenes has politically, his career has been tied up with decisions that involve making peace with the Macedonians. And as far as Demosthenes is concerned, aiding and abetting the Macedonians is fundamentally a disloyal and cowardly thing to do. So he points out only now that Athens has been defeated by Macedon does Eskenes level these accusations. Why didn't he make them earlier, before the defeat? Demosthenes suggests this is because Escanes is a sympathizer with Macedonia, and it's only once Athens has been defeated that Escanes can reveal the extent of his disloyalty to the city. In contrast, Demosthenes highlights his own loyalty. He says, alone of those who speak regularly before the people, I did not leave the post of civic loyalty in that overwhelming situation, the situation of Macedonia expansion but I was holding my post, both speaking and moving the necessary proposals for your sake at that terrifying time. In this way, he reframes the good citizen. So here are a couple of quotes where he he frames the good citizen in a different way. He says, two things, men of Athens, must a truly responsible citizen do. For to speak of myself in such a way is the least enviable. When in a position of power, to guard the city's policy of nobility and preeminence, and at every opportunity and in every deed to guard his loyalty. Two characteristics, men of Athens, a citizen of respectable character, must be able to show. When he enjoys authority, he must maintain to the end the policy whose aims are noble action and the preeminence of his country, and at all times and in every phase of fortune, he must remain loyal loyal, for this depends upon his own nature." While his power and influence are determined by external causes, right? So it doesn't matter if he succeeds or if his military campaigns are, are successful, uh, because he tried to further the independence and power of the city of Athens. And he did this consistently, uh, and he never broke, w- uh, in terms of loyalty because he's done that, uh, He's a good citizen, even though all of his military campaigns may have failed. He's powerless to deal with the fact that the Macedonian army is so strong and so good at fighting. Right. So. And in me, you will find this loyalty has persisted unalloyed. For from the very first, I chose the straight and honest path in public life. I chose to foster the honor, the supremacy, the good name of my country, to seek to enhance them and to stand or fall with them. Right. Even if the Macedonians lose, and even if he ends up getting, uh, I, excuse me, even if the Athenians lose, and even if Demosthenes ends up getting in trouble or arrested or executed or whatever, he puts himself in danger. He makes himself this notorious figure that the Macedonians hate, and he doesn't mind the risk that that puts him in because he's more committed to the city. And that's the argument. So, how did it turn out? Well, Ascanius is said to have failed to get even one fifth of the votes in this case. Demosthenes completely wipes the floor with him. Now, falling below that threshold incurs a fine for frivolous litigation, and Escanes could not pay this fine. So, he goes into voluntary exile. He opens a school of rhetoric in Rhodes, on the island of Rhodes, quite far from Athens. Uh, and eventually he dies at the age of 75 in 314, in exile. Now, what happens to Demosthenes. Well, a few years after this trial in 324, one of Alexander the Great's men, Harpalus, absconds with a bunch of Alexander's money and seeks refuge from the Macedonians in Athens. Demosthenes sees that this could develop very badly, and he advises the city not to accept Harpalus. The assembly votes not to give Harpalus sanctuary, but Harpalus eventually makes his way into Athens anyway. I mean, it's hard to enforce all these rules, isn't it? especially with ancient technology and resources and institutions. Once he gets into the city, though, Demosthenes is able to get Harpalus put in prison, and then Athens seizes Harpalus' money. So by putting Harpalus in prison, this shows that the city is not an accomplice. It's not helping Harpalus. Right? Now, Harpalus has less money than expected. When the city takes Harpalus's money, they, they find, hey, there's not as much as as we thought there would be, did Harpalus overstate the amount of money that he had, or did Demosthenes steal some of it? So of course Demosthenes is accused of stealing the money, and then the city finds him more money than he could pay. Now Demosthenes' defenders say this was instigated by pro-Macedonian elements who were hoping to get rid of Demosthenes on this charge different historians have different views some people think he did take the money some people think he took the money but that doesn't mean that he was a traitor because taking money was a routine an ordinary part of athenian politics that lots of people do and some people think it was all trumped up by pro-macedonian elements and of course demosthenes would make that kind of argument i'm sure if you were able to argue it uh, to us today Demosthenes escapes the authorities, he flees the city, he comes back nine months later after Alexander dies in 323, and by all accounts, when he comes back, his return is widely celebrated. It seems that he was very well-liked and popular among the ordinary Athenians. He then immediately calls for Athens to exploit Alexander's death and rebel again. So Antipater, one of Alexander's generals, crushes the revolt. In 322, he then demands that Athens hand over Demosthenes. Clearly, the Macedonians are tired of all these rebellions and they're tired of dealing with this guy. Now, the city is in no position to argue because they've continuously rebelled. They've seen what the Macedonians have done to Thebes. They've rebelled yet again after that and been defeated. They're very, very lucky that the Macedonians don't do the same exact thing to them that has been done to Thebes. They've really gotten away with it multiple times at this point so they have no choice but to comply and to order that Demosthenes be handed over. Demosthenes again evades capture for a while but when it becomes clear that his capture is imminent he commits suicide by poisoning himself in 322 at the age of 62. So ultimately both uh, Aeschines and Demosthenes end up being kicked out of the city and dying in some kind of exile. And even though Demosthenes gets the better of Aeschines uh, politically, Eskenes ends up outliving Demosthenes by a considerable margin. He both lives to be much older and he lives longer in, in time. He lives eight years longer and he lives to be 13 years older. So if you're you know Thomas Hobbes and you measure this by how long you avoid death, uh, Eskenes is the winner. But maybe if you care about honor, uh, you might prefer the way that Demosthenes goes out. So, Demosthenes' last words, they're alleged to have been, uh, and this is to uh, a person who is going to um, deal with his his body. He says, Now as soon as you please, you may commence the part of Creon in the tragedy and cast out this body of mine unburied. But, O gracious Neptune, I, for my part, while I am yet alive, Arise up and depart out of this sacred place, though Antipater and the Macedonians have not left so much as the temple unpolluted. So Demosthenes was defiant to the end. And in terms of historical reception, Demosthenes is considered by many Roman orators to be this this fantastic orator, this fantastically persuasive and talented speaker, And he continues to be praised by uh, American politicians, uh, by many of the founding fathers, uh, by Henry Clay, the the famous uh, American uh, Speaker of the House. So there is uh, a lot of influence for Demosthenes. Demosthenes. Ascanese also was a pretty effective orator, pretty effective speaker. He gets Tamarcus thrown out of the city, but he's going up against the goat uh, as far as uh, Athenian politics is concerned. And uh, the goat doesn't miss. So ultimately, Demosthenes prevails against Ascanese in Athenian politics. But being good at Athenian politics doesn't make you good at fighting wars and doesn't mean that you can beat the Macedonians. And so Demosthenes, ultimately, because he's not able to, to win a military campaign, uh, isn't able to, to succeed. So that's kind of my initial opening summary of what we've got going here. I'd love to hear what Alex thinks of these speeches. What do you think, Alex? I think there's more evidence than you let on about
1: Timochus being a prostitute. Oh, you think? I mean... Wasn't it Miskalas and Hegesandros two people who were summoned to give affidavits? And the whole point was that they can testify to the crime while being there without being punished. One of them says that, you know, I was close to him and I still hold high regard. The other one says, I was close to him and many others. And they say intimate, so they're definitely hinting at the kind of sex acts you're talking about. So it's just this yeah. Weird, yeah, the intimacy
0: that's encouraged by the laws, but also taboo. So I think a lot of modern scholarship, when they look at that speech, they are a lot of modern scholars are really appalled by the fact that none of the charges are ever proven to the standard of modern jurisprudence. So having somebody go, I was close to him, is not proof that he prostituted himself. I was close to him, uh, it's a euphemism, I won't say exactly what we did. <laughs> uh, that would not fly in any kind of modern court of law.
1: Not even like... Maybe the modern translation would be uh, romantically close.
0: When the, the word intimate they use might, you know, it might tell Dude, you enough. Even that doesn't prove you know, he prostituted himself. Now, if you were trying to charge someone with prostitution in a modern court, you would not get a conviction off anything Eskenys says.
1: <laughs> not even anything. the the kind of, I don't know, how he doesn't earn his wages as a medic, how he goes about to basically fine fine meals and gambling and all this not enough basically.
0: I this is the kind of the interesting thing about this is if you just read it and you're not thinking about the modern legal system or legal process. You're just going, is this convincing? Well, especially if lots of people have heard the rumor, it would be very convincing, wouldn't it? But if you were trying to uphold a, a set of, of legal procedural rules that are meant to prevent people from being swift boated in this kind of way. <laughs> Uh, those legal procedural rules would force it to be made much more explicit what was actually done there would be dates there would be places and the prosecution would be expected to prove that specific things on specific days in specific places happened none of that has to occur in this
1: actually uh, yeah expects demosthenes to make that case you know to say which were the the houses that he prostituted himself at and because they said it takes attacks on prostitutes. But then, like you were saying, apparently it's too taboo to even talk about it, which is weird because, again, I thought Athens kind of encouraged this kind of love before they have a wife and kids. The, well, way says it, the, the issue them.
0: is not that he uh, had sex. The issue is that he is alleged to have prostituted himself, to have sold his body. So it's specifically on making money off shaming yourself. And the reason that, the Athenians think this is a really bad thing is that a person who would make money off shaming their, their own body, something that's very intimately them, that person would make money off shaming anything. So, of course, the city and anybody else, any other Athenian citizen. That's the argument from the legal standpoint. But because of the norms around discussing these kinds of acts in Athens it's very difficult to have a trial about this law in which you would actually give the kind of evidence that modern lawyers would be looking for.
1: And it's like you're you're expected to self-isolate. If everyone knows that you engage in this, uh, you don't actually lose most of your public rights, do you? Apart from appearing before the people, but yeah, you can still get a lot.
0: Well, if you get put on trial in this kind of way, and there's a court that rules that you have run afoul of the rules for being a, an acceptable participant, then you can be ostracized and kicked out. But otherwise... And that's, he, that's why he's going for it. And that's why there's a, a trial here. The trial here is about whether Marcus's right to speak in the assembly will be taken from him on the basis of this.
1: Is that like maybe a third class? So if you actually get exiled, but then below that it's like a second class where... You self-isolate, you cover yourself, you don't appear before the people, and
0: no one actually prosecutes you for being a prostitute. Uh, These are different kind of of levels of ostracism. I mean, there's a kind of temporary ostracism where you're ordered to uh, not appear for a a period of time. Uh, There was, of course, the regular ostracism in which Athens would vote to ostracize certain sets of people in any given year where they would be kicked out for a period of time to cool things off in the assembly or to get rid of people who have been causing trouble. But then there are also these different legal mechanisms for kicking out specific people on the basis of things that they've done on the basis of, of their running afoul of the good citizenship laws, kind of, you know, carrying yourself with a certain dignity, uh, th- these, these dignity laws, these proper citizen conduct laws. So there are a lot of different ways to get kicked out in Athens. And uh, the, the getting kicked out is integrated into the legal system. So one of the things we have going in modern society, right, our legal system makes it very hard to get convictions because our legal system is is interested in, in whether you've actually proven that somebody's done the thing that you've accused them of. And you have to prove, you know, in a criminal trial, beyond a reasonable doubt, that they did the thing that you think that they did. And that means that if you're trying to get someone removed from politics through a criminal trial, You're going to be really hard pressed to do that because the rules for what would accomplish that are quite strict. So in our society, when we want to get somebody kind of drummed out of politics, we generally will not try to pursue it through the courts because that is difficult and arduous. So if we want to do this kind of character assassination, we have to do it in other kinds of spaces where it's not a trial And where, therefore, the uh, removal, the ostracism, is not formalized, the expulsion is not formalized. And because the expulsion isn't formalized, everyone can have plausible deniability and go, well, we didn't expel him. There has been no legal process by which the person was expelled. So modern people will look at this and go, well, isn't it awful that they didn't have standards of evidence in what was a formal trial? But when we try to get people removed from discussions in our society, oftentimes we will not use any kind of formal legal mechanism precisely because we don't want to have to meet that standard. And we'll instead try to use other less formal procedures for getting rid of somebody. And those procedures, because they're less formal, can't be properly contested by the person who is subject to them. There's no real opportunity for the person to mount a defense, attempts to defend yourself, uh, you know, don't have an audience necessarily for them. So because it happens in an informal way, uh, many of these kinds of arguments can still be made in modern society. Many of these rhetorical strategies can still be used. They're just not used in court. So when people look at this and go oh thank god that modern courts don't work like this well we still have these kinds of arguments and i think especially in the in the post donald trump world we can recognize this you know you get accused of something don't even argue about the thing that you've been accused about instead say i'm the best i'm the greatest i've done wonderful things and then counter accuse that has become an increasingly popular rhetorical tactic in politics as we increasingly go after politicians outside of the court on the basis of public reputation so if you try to say well you know i I think that donald trump has done all sorts of bad and horrible and awful things generally speaking people will make those accusations in the press now they won't make those accusations in a court and if the accusations are made in the press then the way to oppose the accusations is is of course not to try to litigate them in the press one at a time Because then you will be caught up in all of the different things people accuse you of. And you'll allow them to define the narrative and allow them to decide what the press coverage is. But to instead uh, try to flip the narrative, which is what politicians increasingly do. They don't deal with the details of what they're accused of doing. They just say, I'm great. I'm wonderful. I've I've always been a, a good citizen. And it's these people who are accusing me, these people who are the real traitors. And so, the more that we have this kind of um, kind of shame-based thing that goes on outside of the legal system, the more it encourages the kinds of rhetorical strategies that we see here.
1: It can be quite harsh if you're cancelled and you lose a job, but you don't really get kicked out. So, it's not the same as full ostracism. I mean, of the country. You don't get exiled.
0: And it doesn't yeah. last as long and... Yeah, it's not necessarily the same formal rules. So all of that makes it kind of easier to say that it hasn't happened. And so one of the interesting things that happens with modern instances of this is that we're never entirely sure that it's occurred because there's never a formal trial which says, A, that you've been convicted and B, what it is precisely you can't do. A person is kind of left to wonder, what is it that I can still get away with in the public sphere? Can I appear? If I appear, what happens? Uh, If I try to appear, will they tolerate me? Will I be accepted? And so people who go through this, this embarrassing thing, uh, try a lot of different rhetorical strategies to reenter public life. And it's never clear whether they succeed or fail because there are no formal procedures governing this in our society. In Athens, it's all formalized. So while the standard of evidence is much lower, there's much greater level of formalization.
1: I don't know anything about Demosthenes, but from Eskenes' point of view, um, he seems, seems much more like to the letter, as in uh, if someone in a Senate proposes something that contradicts even a syllable of the Constitution, we should pull up the tablet that says this is the law and the clerk should actually enforce it there and then. But nowadays in is saying that everyone's just passing motions left, right and center that don't obey the Constitution. So,
0: yeah, he tries to drive very heavily on, on the law, on, on definitions, right? Uh, whereas in Demosthenes' speech, it becomes a much broader kind of argument. And insofar as Eskeny's attack on Tamarcus is effective, it's because of it becoming a broad argument. You know, it's, yeah, there's a definition at the beginning, and it said that these are the things in the law that you can be kicked out for. But much of the meat of Eskeny's argument is this kind of broad, sweeping character assassination that's to do with challenging somebody's virtue rather than accusing them necessarily of very specific acts, right? If you have to prove that somebody did a very specific act, it's going to be very hard to do anything about them. But... If you can say, well, they are, they are the kind of person in general who does these things, don't we all know that, and these things are not legal, then it becomes easier to make the case. Uh, and with Demosthenes, there's even less of a focus on specific acts and even more of a kind of, of a big sweeping narrative when he really goes after um, Escanes. it's it's this big sweeping narrative of, of disloyalty to the city as a whole but that's the thing if you're having an argument about whether somebody's a good or a bad person a lot of the rules of of criminal court don't make a lot of sense when we're having a kind of criminal thing it's about it's the the person is not on trial as such the question is what did they do right i mean yes they're on trial but their character is not what's on trial. The question is, did they do the thing that they're accused of doing? And so in uh, you know modern court, it's very important to say what it is that they did. When did they do it? Where did they do it? Who saw them do it? You know, these things about the doing are very important. In this kind of trial, it's just about whether somebody has certain virtues or qualities. Are you a coward? Are you... Uh, The kind of person who's a squanderer. Are you a squanderer of inheritances? It's about what kind of person are you? So the specific instances are are evidence only in a loose sense. They're evidence of character rather than specific things you have to prove actually happened. And increasingly, a lot of our informal political discourse is like this. It's about whether somebody is a good person. And if it's about whether they're a good person or the right kind of person, then the standard of, of proof collapses completely and anything that you throw up is just part of a generalized description of somebody's character
1: i mean in in some of the other trials that demosthenes was in apparently he as most of his accomplices in stealing they didn't admit to it so they got a harsher sentence whereas he admitted to it to the actual doing so he got a lower sentence so that's a kind of A case where they, yeah, they mitigate the sentence if they can get you to admit to the doing. Maybe a lot like nowadays, they just give you less terms if you snitch on people. So they obviously still cared about not
0: just character assassinations, but the formal process. Yeah, there is a formal process here, but it's a formal process that's in large part concerned with character, openly concerned with character. As Eskenes points out, the law itself is concerned with what kind of person you are. In some sense, this idea of the good citizen is uh, you know, something that if it's not in the law, it's at least plausibly what the lawgiver intended, plausibly the lawgiver intended for people who were bad citizens to not be allowed to participate or for people who uh, were honored by the city to be people who were good citizens in some sense. So there's then this question of you know, once you're talking about what type of citizen somebody is. Lots of different stuff is potentially relevant now. uh, And the case doesn't stand or fall by any particular point. There's no particular instance you can contest that by contesting that instance disproves the whole case. So you just throw up loads and loads and loads and loads of instances of the trait that you're accusing the person of having. And you just... D- death by a thousand cuts. You don't even have to prove any one of them. It's death by a thousand cuts. You get people to agree in general that the person is this kind of guy. He is a squanderer. He is a prostitute. He is uh, uh, a uh, a coward. You know, if he is this kind of guy, come on, we all know. Don't you know? Haven't you heard?
1: <laughs> Do you think then, if it's not about each piece of evidence, but all of them put together, if the person we accuse is like that towards slaves, as opposed to the free, do you think in the Athenians' mind that they would still see that as a, a nasty person? Because there's a lot of evidence for seeing slaves as like almost fully equal under the terms of the law, but also a lot of evidence
0: where there's shades of equality and slaves are definitely second, third, fourth class citizens. Mm. I and mean, the issue here is, you know, even if, you, you know, if you're a slave, of course, you would not have the right to speak in the assembly. Uh, if you are descended from slaves, you might have some level of, of uh, permissibility to be a citizen, right? Uh, you could get citizenship having had in, you know, earlier in your family a history of, of slavery, but there would be a suspicion of you because you would come from a background that could, would imply that you might be disloyal or that you might be unreliable. And there's so much focus here on what kind of person are you? If you come from this specific class background, well, that would give you an interest that contravenes the interests of the city. So the very fact that you come from that background is a reason for suspicion, freestanding anything else that you may have said or done. It's certainly a reason to be worried about honoring you. Like when Escanes accuses Demosthenes' whole maternal line of being, traitors. Right. If they've always been traders, well, you know, it's not necessarily a traitor's blood argument. But if you come from a family of traders, then your family has an interest that seems to be different from that of the city. And you would, of course, having been brought up in that family, you would be expected to have that interest because you come from that family. So it's not so much about you and what you've done even. Now, of course, insofar as there is evidence of people having done particular things, they'll make use of it. But it's not as if the whole thing stands or falls by that stuff. So there's a role for presenting witnesses or presenting evidence of specific events. That's part of what you might use in an Athenian trial. But you're not limited to that because the focus is on the character. You don't have to go all the way in on particular claims. If you happen to have people who will testify, then great. If they'll present affidavits, then great. The more detailed those things will be, you know, the better. But, of course, you won't have anybody have to testify anything shameful. I mean, to make someone testify something shameful would be embarrassing to them and embarrassing to all concerned. And people's honor is important enough that you can't make them testify to something shameful even to win a legal case.
1: But they did do it here
0: when they got people to testify to being close. Well, and- but by, by being very euphemistic, right? You, you won't make them admit to anything too specific. And to us, well, if you're not admitting to the specific thing, then what good is the affidavit? If you won't say, yes, I did exactly this specific thing with him, uh, then you haven't proven that any particular act took place. You've just said I was close to him. You know, I we were romantic. Uh, I hung out with him a lot. Yeah, we lived in the same house for a while. It's not the same as I, you know, on this podcast, I'm not going to say the specific acts because it would be inappropriate. <laughs> Is there not a modern
1: equivalent, though, when uh, one of the witnesses tells in secret, but then doesn't tell in public? So the public doesn't know, but obviously the judges make their sentence lower because they ratted out someone, maybe. Because then it's a bit
0: like, you know, know, doing a a deal where you admit something. I mean, someone who admits, at least if they're admitting, you know, they're willing to come forward and, and say they're not shamefully trying to cover up the thing you get a little bit of a reference to that to you know if somebody tries to cover it up that would be you know almost almost worse than them admitting it but it has to be secret to protect them right he, he puts uh you know Miskilis in this difficult position where if miscalus shows up and says these things happened i mean that would be shameful so you can't expect him to do that of course if it's true he's not going to say it all happened With that level of detail, at most, you could get him to agree to this affidavit that's incredibly vague. Conversely, if he does show up and says it's not true, well, then he's covering up something everybody knows. Everybody knows this happened. Uh, And if necessary, you know, Demosthenes will go and try to find people who will say that it happened. But come on, don't we all know? I mean, he'll do it if he has to. But don't we all know? That's the argument. Haven't you heard It's talked about everywhere. And this is the thing. Athens is small enough as a physical space in terms of population that rumors do get around and everyone will have heard about it. In a modern trial, you wouldn't want people who were judging the case who had heard about it beforehand. We would say that those people were prejudiced about the trial and that they ought to be recused or not selected as jurors. Right. When you pick a jury for a trial, you want to find people who aren't prejudiced about the case, haven't heard about it, don't know the details. Here, Demosthenes is going, it's great that everybody knows about this, because since you all already know, I don't have to supply the kind of evidence I would otherwise have to supply.
1: Maybe out of context, but I remember Gandhi, I mean, he preferred judges and not uh, juries, but if it was a jury, I think he, he liked the idea of having your kin or people close to you, because it might help the truth, or at least people in your community who know what happened,
0: as opposed to... Right, if you're you're just interested in in what happened. Of course, in modern society, we think, well, all those people are prejudiced. They've all got a bias. Well, in Athens, they're the people who are concerned, whose interests are at stake. And if they all know that it happened, or they all think that it happened, I mean, in in some ways, we're talking about a man's reputation and whether he's a, a shameful person. If everybody thinks he did something, in some ways, he is a shameful person. Uh, just on the basis that it's what everybody thinks, so he his reputation is bad, and if the city allows someone with a bad reputation to talk, I mean, in some ways it does embarrass the city for someone with a bad reputation to speak. You can see how this kind of argument would work. You know, just the fact that everybody thinks he's a shameful person or knows that him to have done shameful things, uh, in and of itself. You know, even if the things uh, were very undetailed about the things, there's a sense in which that, in and of itself, is a problem because reputation and honor are very important in this context. Um, You know, it's it's a very different set of standards and norms for what constitutes convicting somebody of something. But once you take it out of that setting, once you take it out of the courthouse and just go, well, you know, what about regular politics? What about the way journalists cover politics and the way politicians talk to journalists? It's a lot more similar to that. There's a lot of similarity there. We see that kind of thing all the time. This isn't that weird. It's just weird that it's a trial. Maybe Escanese would disagree and say it's not
1: similar because you're confusing common report for slander. You know, slander, the newspapers, it's all about malice. Common report, it's like a religious function in the city.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, newspapers are often able to spread rumors because the people who run the newspapers have reason to think it's true because they've heard it from a source, right? So oftentimes newspapers can get around the accusation that they're slandering in modern society or, or committing libel by going, well, we have reason to think it's true because we have a source that says it happened. We're just reporting that the source said it happened. We're not saying it definitely did. But then that gets around and then it's a, it becomes as if maybe it did happen especially when you're dealing with the kind of thing that a politician can't really prove didn't occur. And it's not a trial. Right. And if you then try to put the newspaper on trial for slander or libel, then you have to prove a bunch of things about the speech, which would also be difficult for you to prove. So trying to resolve the issue by putting the newspaper on trial for slander or libel will only work in cases where the newspaper has been very sloppy. So you have no legal recourse to these kinds of rumors in in modern society.
1: When Eskines talks about Common Report, he talks about the whole people on their own impulse and for no reason they can give, just saying that something took place. But then it sounds like you're talking about newspapers being able to just manufacture that out of nothing.
0: But people have no reason. They just know that it happened because that's what they said. Well, somebody has to tell the newspaper, right? And then the newspaper is, is like a big gossip outlet. Uh, the way it would happen in Athens is somebody would say something to somebody and they would say something to somebody else. And it's a small confined space. So if you say something in the market or you say something at the barber shop in Athens, that's going to get around really fast. The ordinary person can be like a newspaper in a city, in an ancient city that's that small. So I don't think there's as much difference because the ordinary person has so much capacity to spread rumors in ancient Athens. Uh, Certainly a little group of people in Athens, if they want to destroy somebody's reputation, they can run around the city and tell any kind of tale they want. And very quickly, everybody will be familiar with the story.
1: But obviously, people would have tried that. And similarly, nowadays, people have a lot of power on social media to do the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then obviously, people
0: nowadays still have some kind of, you know, judgment. Maybe not. (laughs) I mean, in Athens, at least, everybody, a lot of people know other people personally. So, yeah. There's somebody who might say, "Hey, yeah, I know him and and he's not like that." Today, that that's such a tiny percentage of the people who talk, who actually know the person in person. It,
1: it does seem like that with Demosthenes, like he's kind of paying off everyone, not literally, but he's the member of his tribe that was selected to repair the walls in Piraeus. And mm-hmm. obviously, yeah, if you have a lot of money and you're like it's a bit like Rome, maybe you have like a patron client relationship with everybody. So I I guess you wouldn't just sell
0: out your patron. (laughs) From an ancient point of view, what's the point of having rich people if they're not going to make a larger contribution to the politics of the city? If you're rich, then you ought to make a larger contribution. Otherwise, why should the city tolerate letting you be so rich? And not fight in battles as well, like the most. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, At least you can do is build the walls or supply some ships, you know, make the kind of contribution that the ordinary citizen who has less wealth is unable to make the ordinary citizen who might just be able to row or just be able to fight as a hoplite. They can't supply boats or, or build walls, but a wealthy citizen would be expected to make those larger contributions in Athens. Of course, we're still talking about citizens, the slaves, because they're slaves are it's, it's believed that the slaves must of course have a hostile interest And I find that particular class point that comes up here very interesting. This idea that the slaves, of course, if somebody is a slave, then they would have an interest in bringing down the whole city because it's the city that enslaves them. And even if their parents or grandparents were slaves, they will come from a family that is intrinsically pointed against the interests of the city because the city is an outfit that enslaves their family or them or them formally.
1: Uh, in Esculapius' speech, doesn't he talk about uh, Timarchus selling off all his inheritance, which includes a lot of slaves who I think work freely? I think you could, yeah, you could pay back your uh, like every day. You could pay for freedom if you did a craft. If you're a skilled laborer, I think that
0: yeah. yeah. So in antiquity, sometimes slaves would manage to work for their own freedom, and so in some cases, the slave could be similar to. An indentured servant where the slavery is not necessarily a permanent thing but something that will eventually come to an end with an indentured servant it's a fixed amount of time often in antiquity if you could pay for your own value uh, masters would allow their slaves to keep money that they made from side jobs that they might do and would accept a payment in exchange for freedom so it would not necessarily be the case that an ancient master would confiscate everything that the slave earned right from the start It was possible to maybe try to pay your way out or buy your way out. And then also sometimes ancient masters would, uh, out of a sense of of compassion, when they died, they might free their slaves uh, upon their death or they might free a slave who's been loyal for a long time. Often uh, freed people in antiquity would continue to have quite close relationships with their former masters because their masters would help them to become citizens or help their uh, children or, or descendants to become citizens and kind of lead them. Uh, into public life, helping them when they would have trouble. And uh, I know in Rome, uh, freed people could not necessarily represent themselves in court. Uh, if you'd been you know, someone who had been a slave, you couldn't appear in court. So you would need your former master to be your patron and to represent you in the event that you had a trial. So freed slaves would still have a lot to do with their former masters generally. Uh, all that said... There are certain types of slaves that would not have had these same opportunities. A lot of slaves who were quarry slaves or slaves uh, that would, say, in Rome, fight in the arena. Those kinds of slaves, most of them would die uh, and would not get any kind of opportunity to live particularly long or to raise enough money to buy their own freedom. If you're someone who works in the mines, slaves who work in the mines uh, have very low life expectancy in antiquity. So maybe leaving
1: aside that huge chunk of people, and also the fact that in the courts, a slave could only testify if they're being tortured, all that kind of stuff. Still, most of the skilled labor in Athens was performed by slaves. So that's like a lot of what you might call fulfilling jobs or crafts, What people with good livelihood
0: were well, slaves. The Athenians would not regard those slaves as, as uh, really doing crafts as such. You know, if you look at the way Aristotle thinks about the slaves, the slaves are not choosing their own ends. So the, the craftsman does the craft on the basis of some end. So, for instance, uh, uh, someone who is a cobbler is making shoes on the basis of you know, what they consider to be good shoes or they're making shoes so that they can make money or they're making shoes so that they can be well known as the best shoemaker or the, the uh, most talented shoemaker. Those people are choosing, A, to make shoes, and then they're they're making shoes for some reason or some purpose that they're, you know, it might be a virtuous purpose, it might be a kind of vulgar purpose, but they're picking uh, not just what they do, but why they do what they do. The slave doesn't get the chance to pick what they're doing fundamentally. So for uh, Aristotle, the slave isn't really a craftsperson because a craftsperson has to exercise this this kind of freedom. They have to make a choice about their, what craft to do. They have to make a choice about, uh, you know, why they're doing the craft. They have to perform the craft in service of of some further value. So uh, while the slaves do a lot of different kinds of work that we might regard as, you know, skilled work or uh, or interesting or valuable or important work, They uh, at the time would not have been regarded as craftspeople. Generally, if you uh, see ancient Greek or Roman theorists refer to arts or crafts or artisans or craftspeople, they are not talking about slaves because an artisan or a craftsperson is meant to have a kind of of freedom, uh, an ability to choose ends that a slave doesn't have. Even if a slave performs work that could be performed by a craftsperson, if that work is not uh, chosen by them, they're not craftsperson in the in the antique sense
1: but are you narrowing down ends to just things you do in leisure time because obviously most Athenian citizens would have to give a lot of their time in military service or you know sitting in this court so well it's
0: not a lot yeah, of for, yeah, for Aristotle that that kind of public uh, the things you're expected to do politically the political action is one part of of what a free person does There's action and then there's the period of of contemplation in which you can do other kinds of activity. So, uh, yes, there would be times when you'd be called upon to serve in office. or There'd be times when you'd be called upon to serve in the military. But there would also be times when you weren't being called upon to do those things. So... uh, but yes, uh, a lot of people in the Aristotelian tradition think that it's a problem if someone's life is too overwhelmingly political. If too much of their time is caught up in public service, then there is no opportunity to do philosophy or to practice, uh, you know, the craft, the virtuous crafts. Uh, Nietzsche, for instance, uh, really, really gloms onto to this idea and thinks that uh, if if someone is spending all their time at war or in politics, that they're not fully actualizing uh, People who interpret Aristotle as really valuing contemplation over politics, over the active life, will say that, uh, will will take it in this direction and say that politics interferes with the kind of leisure that you need to become a virtuous person. Uh, But there's another way of viewing it, which is that politics is is itself a craft that you can do virtuously, and that in that sense, it's a way of exercising uh, the capacities in much the same way that the other activities that one might do Uh, or the the contemplation that one might engage in would be virtuous or would be about gaining virtue or growing. And so, therefore, there's less of a contradiction between the two. It's more that action benefits from contemplation, and contemplation benefits from action. We learn about things both by acting and by thinking about them, and if we switch off between doing these things periodically, and one of the facts about Athens is that when you're picked for something, it's usually for a fixed period of time. You're not picked for it for forever and ever. So you might do it for a season or for a year, and then you might get uh, you know, some time off where somebody else is doing it. There's a rotation of offices. So uh, if somebody, however, is constantly in offices, one after another after another, for Aristotle, that person is not getting a chance to think about things very much and not getting a chance to... Do the other side of life. I tend to interpret Aristotle in this kind of balanced way of, of he's he's interested in action and he's interested in contemplation. And he thinks that somebody ought to be doing both of these things. Uh, but there are some people who take it more in the contemplative direction and argue that action is just a means to contemplation. Uh, Hannah Arendt, for instance, argues that, you know, setting up an, uh, the city and operating the laws and so on, that all of that is just a means of creating a space where you can do uh, artistic expression and and where you can speak uh, and engage in, in in rhetoric and in these performances that uh, cause you to be widely recognized by others. I I think that, Arendt and Nietzsche tend to overplay that side of it. I I think that for an ancient Greek politics is very clearly something that is an important thing to do and an important part of uh, expressing, and not just politics in say the Arendtian sense, but Politics in terms of of fighting in wars and um, operating the law, occupying offices, maintaining things. It's not just about giving speeches. It's also about doing these jobs that are important jobs, uh, and that one can do well. These are the opportunities to exercise the virtue that one has cultivated. And, uh, and to discover whether one really has the virtue that one thinks one has, you know, situations where your virtue is tested, where there's a bunch of money that runs through your fingers. And, and we get to find out if, how much of it you keep for yourself.
1: Yeah. And maybe a tangent, but that is how Athens was maybe more like today. The amount of auditing, auditing they had and accounts checking and the amount of times Escanese refers to, hey, bring up this law bring up this general,
0: you know, how much was spent. Oh, and it's, it's also, it's a great way to get rid of people. I mean, if the law says people who squander the resources of the city are a problem, well, then audit, audit, audit. Anybody that you don't like, try to get them on something. Uh, and given the way that this system works, if you can say, well, they're a squanderer, they're a bribe taker, they're corrupt, uh, you know, that can be a, an attack on the virtue. So you don't necessarily have to prove any specific case. You can just go, aha, Harpalus claimed he had all this money. But the city only got this much money. So where's the rest of the money? Did Demosthenes take the money? Maybe he did. Maybe he did. He could have done that. I think he's someone who takes money. I think there have been many other cases where he may have taken money. Don't we all know about all these cases where he may have taken the money? Is it like the cliche nowadays where
1: you can't get someone, you have to follow the money trail, and then they'll, you'll find a way? Someone illegal.
0: Well, you know, today, if you were to try to prove that somebody took money, you'd really have to show that it happened. You couldn't just go, well, haven't we all heard? And you couldn't go, well, he said he had this money, but we only got this much. What happened to the rest of it? I mean, for all we know, Harpalus overstated the amount of money that he had. Maybe Harpalus thought that by saying he had a lot of money, that would make him an attractive person to take in. I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe the money got lost somehow. Who knows where the money went? Uh, and if, you know, of course, Demosthenes could have taken money. But this is the nature of these kinds of cases. You never really get to the bottom of what happened. But that's not really the point. It's not really about what happened. It's about, are the people you're dealing with good and trustworthy people? And it makes sense to think this way in an ancient city because you know, these are people who are going to make arguments about when and uh, when to go to war and who to go to war with. And they're going to go with you to the war, and you're going to stand next to them in the phalanx, and you need to trust them. Any person in the city you could find right next to you in a battle line with the Macedonians or the Persians or the Spartans or whomever it might be, right? And you got to trust that they're going to stick next to you because their shield covers you a little bit, too. That's how the phalanx works. Your shield doesn't just cover you. It covers the guy next to you. So matters of character are very important. Self-evidently in this society in an obvious kind of way. So when modern people go, why aren't you more interested in the details of the act? Isn't this you know not right? That's just not the way that these people are going to think about it. And there's nobody in the in any of these arguments who goes, shouldn't we fixate on the details of the act? You know, people who read. Against Esophon, they expect Demosthenes to litigate the details of the act and go, you have no evidence, you didn't actually prove any of these things. But Demosthenes knows that that's not how you get things done in ancient Athens. That's not going to work.
1: But it's weird if it's so much about character. Um, at the same time, they things that are known to be just vice, like for example, older men chasing after boys. It could be the pure love that's like Achilles, Patroclus, but most of the time... For example, Escanese talks about if the free citizens can't restrain themselves, they should at least go after the slaves. You know, just channel it into the slaves. Uh, That's acceptable, though. And you'd be okay fighting in a phalanx with someone like that. And it's just a bit weird.
0: Well, you know, there's nobody's perfect, but there are there's certain things that rise to the level of proof of bad character. And then there's you know ordinary stuff that people do. It's not as if Athens is a a puritanical city with laws against drink or laws against, uh, you know, uh, having having sex with boys. It's not it's not that from the point of view of them rigid. Uh, But if you do certain things that are considered shameful because they imply the possibility that you might betray the city in some way that's when athenian law is going to crack down and so it helps to show you know a lot of our notions of what counts as virtue and vice come out of this period where people were thinking well what kinds of of attitudes would make someone unreliable to have next to you in a phalanx and if you think about it like that you know some people do this you know some employers do this kind of thinking you know uh, my my father uh, at the company he worked for they had a Uh, A thing where if they were going to hire somebody, they would ask a question, uh, which is if I was sat next to this person on a long train ride, you know, a really long train ride across the country, you know, three days on a train. uh, Could I get through it? Would it be okay? Not would it be great, but would it be okay? Would this person be able to be interesting enough to make a three day train ride all right? Or would this person you know, really drive me crazy and make me want to you know, you know, hurt myself? And in the same way, that's a question about, you know, is this somebody you want next to you in a foxhole, in the phalanx, on a long train ride? These are the kinds of questions that are pertinent in this context, not the kinds of metrics that we use today to assess whether somebody does or doesn't do specific things. It's this all-encompassing Yeah, because oftentimes if somebody isn't trustworthy in the phalanx, you don't want to find out when you're in the phalanx. You need to try to infer that they're not trustworthy from something else they've said or done or from some other combination of acts of theirs. Because by the time they're not trustworthy in the phalanx, it's it's late. It's it's too late. Now you're in real danger because they threw away their shield and took off. Now, of course, if someone's thrown away their shield and taken off, well, that's a really obvious instance of not being trustworthy in the phalanx. But you'd ideally like to be able to spot somebody who might do that before you're next to them in the phalanx. And so the Athenians come up with all these, you know, legally, this is a sign that you could be the kind of person who might throw away their shield in a phalanx. You might be the kind of person who would take bribes from the Persians or from the macedonians or whoever you know you might do this because you come from this kind of family people from this kind of family have different interests you know so they try to make these suppositions and to us all of this involves stereotyping all of this involves sloppy you know sloppy thinking uh, you know. but for the athenian if you're going to be in a phalanx next to somebody you can't be too careful about vetting those people you really do not want somebody next to you in the phalanx who might be unreliable so you're willing to make the law broader Right. So that you can incorporate all of this in our society. We're not in as many situations where you have to put that kind of trust in other people. And so we aren't as interested in other people's character. We don't care as much. And we get this more libertarian logic of, well, you know, if they're not messing with what I'm doing, why should I mess with what they're doing? But for the Athenians, if you have a society where you let loads of people do whatever they want all the time, well, loads of those people are going to become not the kind of person you can have in the families. So you become very interested in what kind of person is is your neighbor because if the Persians show up you're going to have to stand next to them in the families. And so uh, today when a lot of people try to you know who have a kind of more um you know, some people are are nostalgic for this kind of politics and they they want to get us to care about uh, whether people are are virtuous or good people in the same kind of way. But it it's not likely to to make sense to us, because we're not going to be in this situation where you have to trust somebody to stand next to you in a phalanx. Uh, indeed, if you're in a military situation these days, it's not that likely that you're going to be you know, next to somebody in that kind of sense. In a lot of modern military situations, uh, you're pushing buttons behind a computer. You're not really in personal danger. Uh, you know, There are still military roles where this is considered important. But also the percentage of our society that is likely to participate in those military roles is very small. It's only a small number of people who are actually likely to fight as infantry in a modern army uh, today. The overwhelming majority of us aren't really thinking about this. It doesn't come into our lives. It's not something that we realistically have to worry about. So we're not as concerned with the moral qualities of the person next to us. But veterans... Veterans tend to worry about that kind of stuff because veterans have been in these kinds of situations, especially in contexts where you really are going to fight, you know, with a spear and a shield and your shield's going to cover a guy next to you. That's a very intimate kind of fighting compared with what we do now, where, you know, you fly fighter jets and push buttons, pull triggers from very far away, Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, if you're in, if you're infantry, you'll, it'll come up now and then. But this logic doesn't come up nearly as much today. Uh, but a lot of people are attached to the virtues that are associated with this logic, and so want uh, some semblance of this logic back. Yeah, you know, Nietzsche, I think in particular, really, really missed Greek city states and the kinds of ways of thinking that they engender. Do
1: you think it's less uh, a case of it's like the experts making decisions on behalf of all when they cancel people back in the ancient times. Is it a more democratic decision? Like, so I don't want this guy in the phalanx.
0: Well, the, the judge is, is just some citizen who's been picked to judge. It's not necessarily an expert. Or a minority. In the, way, the way Athens works, it's, it's democratic in the sense that if you are uh, a citizen, you can be picked for offices. And a lot of offices are picked through sortition. Where anyone who's a citizen might end up being called upon to do this thing. Uh, the speaking in the assembly, there are certain speakers who tend to dominate the assembly. And one of the things that is complained about, I think Eskenes complains about it at one point in one of these speeches, is that there's a narrow set of talkers who are doing all the talking these days, and everybody else is just following them around and not getting to participate in the assembly. The thing is, when you're picking offices, you can do this kind of pick out of a hat sort of thing. But when you're in the assembly, the tendency is for certain people to end up doing a lot of talking because certain people are better at speaking than other people. And that allows them to find ways to get to talk more often. And when they talk, their talking has a bigger impact on the audience. So in Athens, talking, the ability to talk becomes a really powerful thing. And they become really focused on rhetoric and who's good at it and who isn't. And the point that Plato will, 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 has made prior to this point, Plato is, is earlier, is that a lot of these talkers aren't actually good at making decisions. Demosthenes is a great talker. He can convince Athenians to rebel against the Macedonians over and over and over again, but those rebellions never work. Do you think it's nonsense, like the theoretical implication that
1: Aeschines draws from that, which says, if you talk at intervals, you're democratic? But if you're always talking, like Demosthenes, you're kind of oligarchic or autocratic. Yeah, there's
0: almost something undemocratic about the person who talks too much in the assembly. Yeah, there's something fundamentally you know, potentially disloyal to the city about talking too much, about taking more time than is really your your fair share. Uh, the trouble is you, know, you can't really easily equalize for rhetorical ability. One of the critiques of Athenian democracy that Plato makes that people don't talk about as much. There's a bit in the Republic when Plato talks about how you don't even really have rule of the people. You have rule by the talkers, rule by the people who are good at talking. And those people take most of the money that the democracy claims will be delivered to the people. I see some parallels with your critiques of the professional class in contemporary life, the professional class that... Claims to be interested in in, uh, the workers, but in point of fact, often has interests of its own that might contradict those of the uh, working population as a whole. Uh, A similar kind of critique here from Plato, where Plato says, well, you you say you have democracy, but you just have rule by the talkers. And eventually, both the people who are being robbed by the talkers, the rich people, and the people who are being stiffed by the talkers, the poor people, will grow tired of the talkers. And at that point, the cycle of regimes intensifies, and you get this conflict between would-be oligarchs and uh, the people who are looking for a protector to protect themselves from the oligarchs. And and those people end up supporting the tyrant. And so in this way, the talkers are are thrown out by when the class conflict that the talkers are papering over gives way uh, and and intensifies. And you get this competition for power between rich people and this tyrant who claims to speak on behalf of the people or to defend the people.
1: And maybe the tyrant cancelling them would be a case of the expert or the minority kind of acting for everybody else. But even Eskenes, when he says that private lawsuits correct public abuses, he's kind of doing the same thing. He's saying that people are held to account by one person kind of acting for all and then cancelling someone else. As if they speak for everyone. Yeah, and
0: this one person, you know, rather than frame this one person as someone who is targeting somebody, Escanes goes, "Well, this one person is doing a public service by exposing that this, you know, somebody that people have been listening to is untrustworthy and dangerous." So it's not that he's, you know, just uh, targeting this guy uh, on a personal level. He's doing a public service by targeting him, and so of course one of the things that Demosthenes will say is that Escanes is his personal enemy. It's a personal matter that he's trying to treat as if it were a public matter.
1: Another thing that I don't know about what Demosthenes says, but at least Aeschines expected Demosthenes to say that uh, Demosthenes was doing a public service because of, you know, building the walls and stuff and using his own money to build the walls. And he says, that's nonsense. Obviously, you have to be audited for anything you do for the state. I don't know. But they're still using this language of uh, it's private, it's personal.
0: Yeah, you know, why is somebody doing what they're doing? It's, yeah, there is this very sharp distinction in Athens between what's considered private, what's considered public. Um, But the distinction is drawn differently from how we currently draw it because it's much more readily acknowledged in Athens that what somebody does in private can affect what they do in public. So the fact that, that, uh, well, not the fact that the allegation that Say, uh, Tamarcus prostituted himself in this home of uh, you Now This is something that occurs entirely in private. But it matters because if he's done this, it affects his public character.
1: But at the same time, he's a lesser criminal, so he can still keep the private citizenship rights. He just loses the public ones, like speaking in front of people. So he can still be mm. a citizen if he just shields himself and doesn't make a noise but he does make a noise, so he has to prosecute him.
0: Yeah, if he acknowledged that he was this kind, you know, a, a person who wasn't fit to speak in the assembly, he could keep the rest of the citizenship rights. It's because he continues to try to participate, even though he is this kind of person, according to Eskinews, that uh, it, it it causes uh, him to to have to file this lawsuit. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's a very different kind of logic from the kind of logic that, we use in uh, in legal proceedings. But I do think, especially as our politics becomes more about who's a good person, who's a bad person, shaming people, targeting people for uh, as having been uh, bad people who shouldn't be allowed to talk or shouldn't be allowed to participate in society. uh, The the cancel culture, it invites this kind of, of pettiness and these kinds of arguments that by legal standards are very flimsy but they do become a kind of dominating logic. I think the the interesting thing is why in our society are we so focused on whether particular people are shameful in different ways when in our society, you're not going to have to stand next to any particular person in the phalanx. Because morality
1: works on shame. I don't know. Yeah, but why
0: why are we as concerned about it? You know, one of the things that usually distinguishes modern society is that we have a Reduced concern about whether or not other people nearby are virtuous, morally upright people, because it doesn't matter as much. Your neighbor, you know, I'm looking out my window at uh, my neighbor's house. I don't know what's going on in that house. I'm sure, you know, he's probably a good guy, but I don't know. And, uh, you know, maybe he's really an awful person. I couldn't tell you. Uh, You know, he seems like a nice guy when I see him. You know, but... I'm not that concerned. It doesn't matter to me. I don't have to know that the person who lives next door to me is of the kind of character that they could stand in the phalanx.
1: I'm not sure. I I think the whole idea of modern society is that you don't need brutal punishments to keep people in line. You expect them to self-govern. If you lose that expectation that they're going to be self-governing, you're very scared because you haven't really got, unless you're American, you haven't got weapons to defend yourself or you can't expect the state to (laughs) brutally punish them, you know? (laughs)
0: Well, but you know I'm not talking about someone who's likely to commit, you know, serious crime against me. I'm just talking about, you know, whether somebody is of good character, right? Whether somebody is just a good person, whether they're someone who would run away in a battle. It doesn't matter to me if my neighbors are the kinds of people who would run away in a battle. I don't have to worry about that. And I don't have to worry about all the other things that might be connected to that that fall short of you know criminal activity, you know, where they might actually burglarize my house or try to hurt me. I'm not you know, that's a, a separate question. Okay. You know, lots of people are worried about crime, but they're not worried about character as such. They're not worried about whether the people around them are upright, virtuous people who, if they were in the phalanx, would, of course, uh, do their duty. Right? We, we don't s- seem to need that level of concern. But in a lot of our public uh, or you know, at least social media online kinds of spaces, we have become focused on these character issues and i think the reason we've become focused on a lot of that stuff is that the internet is a kind of sense public realm it's a lot like the agora in the sense that it's a conversation everybody's in all the time especially on the really big social media platforms like a facebook or a twitter these platforms are not bifurcated into different segments you know reddit if you you know Say something that people in Reddit don't like; they can just kick you out or delete your posts uh, and move on. You know, Reddit is bifurcated into different spaces, and therefore it's more like a set of civil society organizations. You know, it has more in common with the public discourse you might associate with, you know, London societies or talking shops, um, you know, or, or uh, you know, the French coffee shops or something like that. But uh, Facebook and Twitter are more like an Athenian space in the sense that everybody is. It, Is trying to talk and everybody wants the conversation to go their way and they want the conversation to have the kinds of effects that they think conversation ought to have. Insofar as we've become interested in deliberation and we think that deliberation has an effect on the kind of society that we have, uh, we think that the, the conversation that goes on on social media matters or is important. You know, especially I think people didn't think this until around 2016, you know, when people started to think, well, the conversation is affecting the results of the elections and therefore affecting public policy. So then you become very f- fixated on how people talk and what motivates their talking. And are they really you know, talking because of the public interest or are they talking to advance their careers? Are they grifters who are participating not for the purposes of advancing the conversation, but to grift or to make money off of people? Uh, or to trick or deceive people into supporting their private schemes or pri- private career projects. Uh, we become more interested in that because we're having conversations in these big giant forum for like Twitter and Facebook. And we think that things like Twitter and Facebook affect real politics. Uh, if we didn't think it affected real politics, we wouldn't care. We didn't used to care back in you know, 2012, 2008. The Internet was full of all kinds of ridiculous speech and everybody thought it was it was uh, you know, Either people didn't care; they thought it was funny, or they they said, "Oh, this is grimy," but it didn't really matter. You know, now people think that it matters, and so now the way that you conduct yourself in in the Facebook or in the Twitter, uh, you know, and I use that just as a as a kind of tongue and cheek thing, you know that that becomes really important if you think that the way that we're talking online is is going to determine the elections and determine the policy and all of that but in some ways it's it's all kind of hubris because there's an enormous number of people online very little of what's said online I think really translates into any kind of shift in things but people fancy themselves as you know able to affect you know, all sorts of enormous numbers of different things by talking on online and so they're using this kind of Athenian Discourse in situations where it really doesn't make a lot of sense to use it, because very little of what anybody says online is going to actually produce political change or get anything to happen that's different. Uh, these these we're really overstating, I think, the importance of Twitter and Facebook and and big ticket online discourse, uh, and we're we're doing this because you know we have this notion that the only reason that the presidential election was won in 2016 is because you know, uh, there were Russian trolls who said things that supported Hillary Clinton. And the only reason that you know, 2020 went the way it happened is that there were you know, people running the social media sites, suppress the Hunter Biden story. You know, we're, we're concocting these narratives where if only the public space had been governed you know in the right kind of way if only the deliberation had been structured in the right kind of way then somebody else would have won the election and i think it's a way in which people who like to talk flatter themselves a little bit that the things they say make more of a political difference than they really do uh, you know, in athens it made more sense because there weren't so many people and the people who talked a lot in the assembly were heard a lot by everybody uh, yeah, and only one person could be given a speech, really, in the assembly at once, although you could pillory the person and yell things at them while they talked. You know, uh, so there was a much greater scarcity. You know, you're either on the, on the podium or you're not. Uh, you know, it, on the Internet, everybody screams all at once, and very little of anything anybody screams makes any difference. Uh, and there's way too many screamers. But we all wish that we, you know, things we say matter. We'd like it to be the case that we as individuals matter. So we inflate the importance of it. And then we start using Athenian rhetorical discourse to you know, pretend that we're chasing people out of the agora. But it's it's not really the same kind of discussion. It doesn't have the same kinds of stakes. And we're just kind of tricking ourselves into thinking that a lot of the things we do make, uh, make more of a difference than I think they really do. That's by thought. We're at about like an hour and a half. I think we're even past an hour and a half. Oh, yeah, we are. So we got to wrap it up. But uh, thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.